Will you turn with me this morning to Luke 9, um, and we're going to begin with uh, verse 37. Okay, on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. So typical of man. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Pam. Well, we are kind of wrapping up this first section of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, The book transitions here in chapter 9 as the Galilean ministry is finished and they will head on towards Jerusalem as Jesus will prepare the disciples for one more year on the way to the cross. But as we look at this story this morning, it reminds us that um, unfinished business is still out there. One of the greatest stressors, I think, well, for me, maybe for you too or for all people, is when you've got some unfinished business, something you need to get done. Maybe you're a student, uh, junior high, high school, or college, and you've got a paper that you need to get done, and the weekend's coming, and it's due on Monday, and you just had to go to bed stressed, not having it finished. That's hard. Or you've got a DIY project at home, and you, you just can't seem to wrap it up. That unfinished business is hanging out there. It's stressful. Or you've got a project at work that's due Monday, and Friday ends, and you, you wanted to get it done, but now it's going to go into the weekend. No one likes leaving unfinished business out there, do they? No one. But as it comes to discipleship, apprenticing with Jesus, we are unfinished as well. We're not finished yet. But I think sometimes we can get lulled into kind of into the life of spiritual slumber or sleep, thinking that we're we're pretty close to done baking. Like I'm kind of almost there. Like we're ready to come out of the oven a full grown disciple. But actually, I, I would like like microwave discipleship, wouldn't you? 
Just push the button, and 30 seconds later, a mature disciple pops out. But that's not how life works. In fact, I think our natural spirit, uh, prideful default is not to drift towards holiness. D.A. Carson said that, a free church guy, evangelical free church. He said, no one drifts towards holiness. And in the, the same token, I think we can say, no one drifts towards spiritual maturity. But I think we drift the other way. And you all, we've all felt it, different seasons of life. Maybe you're in one today. You've drifted towards spiritual slumber, uh, or, and your maturity has kind of stopped. That is until a difficult challenge enter your li- enters your life, right? And you realize, and you're kind of shocked back to reality, wow, I'm maybe not as mature as I thought I was. And that, 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 that difficult challenge is usually conflict in life. But think of the moments of your life when you were shocked back to reality, that conflict. Maybe we can think of them as opportunities. Uh, you know, everyone thinks they're a mature Christian. If you were a Christian in your early years, until... You got married, right? Or until you had kids. I mean, marriage is like, it pretty much reveals to you that, oh, a selfishness comes oozing out of your pores you never thought was there. But then there's a rude wake-up call of children. Nothing reveals that remaining growth and unselfish business of discipleship than having kids. But it doesn't stop in life, right? And even those that maybe don't have kids, you know this. There's a work conflict, and it takes grace to deal with that. Or all of us, every one of us in here, the grace to deal with an aging body as it breaks down. That conflict, those things bring those moments of shocking back to reality. I'm not as mature as I thought. Or the other one, becoming the primary caretaker of your loved one. You see again, oh, I'm not as finished as I thought I was. As hard as these wake-up calls are, these conflicts, I want us this morning to see them as we see it in the disciples' life, that I, it's a good grace reminder that I am unfinished because God is saying to us this morning, I began this good work in you. I will finish this work. I'm not done with you. So maybe this morning you're at a moment of, of, that, of crisis, of conflict. Can we look at it this morning as a moment of grace? That God is reminding you, I'm not finished with you. Are you in one of those moments of spiritual slumber or just a moment of content or what I would ask us all this morning to have a holy discontentment, a Christian restlessness that springs from a heart that knows it's unfinished? That's all of us. So this morning, we're going to look at four, I hope we see them as encouragements, little vignettes, little short stories as we look at Jesus addressing the unfinished nature of the disciples' heart in these four stories. So let's look at them. Our first one is this one. Growing faith, if we want to be a heart that's growing, we display a growing, prayerful trust that Jesus is stronger than evil. So for our setting here, Jesus had just come down the mountain, do you remember? He'd just come down from the mountain where he had shown his glory to Peter, James, and John. It's called the transfiguration, a big word. just means Jesus was shining for a moment, showing kind of behind the curtain that he was God in flesh and it exploded out of him. And Peter, James, and John have heard the voice of God. Imagine the mountaintop experience. It was much like Moses on the mountain receiving the law. It paralleled that, actually. This glorious, wonderful experience. And while that was going on, you know what's happening with the nine? Utter failure. Big, utter failure. 
was going on at the exact same time. The nine were on the ground in the valley below, failing miserably at what they had just been successful at a few weeks earlier, casting out a demon. Jesus and the three, they walk down, as Luke records, he records for us in the scripture there, um, that they come down the mountain on the next uh, day. They come into an intense situation. Mark records that the scribes were arguing with Jesus' disciples. The disciples had attempted an exorcism, and they'd failed absolutely miserably, fell flat on their face. If you've ever been there in your Christian life, you know that feeling. Something you felt you had mastered and had mm, self-control over, whether it was your temper or, or lust or anger or, or, or a pride that you thought, oh, man, I just, just I thought I had some control over that. And all of a sudden it rears its ugly head again. They fell flat on their face. Maybe you can relate. And they encounter this desperate man as Jesus and the three come down who's got, he's desperate because he's only got one child and one son only, this child. And this son has been tormented year after year by evil, evil in the flesh, a demon possession. And it's described in great kind of upsetting detail by Luke and the other gospels. A demon who made him convulse, cry out. A demon that controlled his body in some ways and even threw him in to water and fire. And he foams at the mouth. He's covered with scars, one of the other Gospels says. And Mark records that he's also deaf and mute. Can you imagine this, not only this parent's perspective and situation, but this poor child, this poor child. And Luke's words, the father comes and even says, he shatters him, the demon shatters him. Literally, the words say it's literally, he's crushing him together like squeezing him up into a ball of tinfoil. You've done that. Squeeze as tight as you can. This demon is crushing him together. What an absolutely horrible nightmare situation for this family and the disciples here. And the disciples had been powerless in the face of this evil, or at least they thought. But it only takes a small rebuke from Jesus. You catch it there. There's a small word, and the demon flees, and the boy is healed, and Jesus in mercy gives him back to his father. And that's a huge part of the story, but it's not the primary thing here. The primary thing is Jesus' response to the Father's question that's important. Look at verse, oh, where are we here? Uh, 40 and 41. He says to um, them, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. Jesus is referencing there Deuteronomy 32, where Moses in his song, where they're transitioning leadership from Moses to Joshua, he speaks of the Israelites' lack of faith and their twisting that had happened amongst them in their hearts in evil as they rebelled. And Jesus is telling the disciples here something similar. I think he's speaking to the disciples here, not the rest of the crowd, but probably the disciples who had failed here. He's telling the disciples, you failed because you lack faith. And one of the other gospels says, because you didn't pray. He says, this one is only can be cast out by prayer. They didn't pray. In other words, they didn't pray, they didn't have faith, they had, they had transferred their trust. They tried their best, I think, but they had moved from a trust in God to a trust in their own efforts. Jesus is saying, you have forgotten your call as a spiritual 
disciple, as one walking this hard path, you have forgotten that faith is growth in prayerful trust in Jesus' power over evil. And Jesus is the one who defeats evil. I'm the one working, he's saying, even through you, my disciples, when you work. And you have forgotten this. You've become like that twisted generation that came long before you, that would have been so clear in their memory, still. What Jesus is doing here is he's declaring a war in this world on any attitude the disciples here specifically, on any attitude that would do one of two things. Either dismiss evil as not real. You know, we forget that we're actually engaged in a real spiritual battle. They had forgotten and they thought it was just on the earthly human level. They'd forgotten that Jesus is the power. So he's dismissing and waging war on that attitude Jesus is. We forget that. But also an attitude that gives evil too much credit that exaggerates evil. We do that in this world when we say things like, the devil made me do it. Or, hey, I'm only human. That's just the way I am. As if we are helpless in evil's hand. Jesus is reminding us that he is greater than he that is in the world. He's reminding the disciples that. You forget, you've forgotten who you are, and that you and I, the disciples and us included, we have all the resources available to us as Christ's disciples. Here's a few verses to remind us of that truth. If you want to jot a reference down even later to look at them again, but these are good promises. Ephesians 6, finally, be strong in the Lord. You have resources, and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, Ephesians 6. 2 Peter 1.3, this is one of my favorite verses. I love this verse. His divine power has granted to us some things. No, what? What does it say? All, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. What's Peter saying there? He's not saying that, you know what? We're really excited about the resurrection life to come. We are. And there will be things unique about that era and joy and glory that we can't imagine. But Peter's saying, right now, actually, he's given you all things that pertain that you need, the resources you need to live life and godliness. And the disciples here in their battle against evil. Or this extended passage, Ephesians 1. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? There's that faith according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. Everything. Not some things. All things. And gave him his head over all things to the church. That's us. Which is the body, the fullness of him who fills it all in all. So what's our takeaway from this first little story? This first little interaction with the disciples and Jesus. We have nothing to fear in life. I know there's plenty of ample opportunity, isn't there? And it does happen, and it will happen, those moments of fear or failure as the disciples experienced or as you've experienced it when you've fallen flat on your face again. But Jesus is saying, You have nothing to fear because we can be active participants by prayer and faith as he called the disciples to as kingdom citizens. 
as we represent Jesus, who has all authority, who has all power, who has all dominion, this verse here even says, and that we represent that, the one who stands over all things. So whether you come into contact with the type of evil that is on the level of possession, that kind of real face-to-face evil, or it's just the daily battle against sin in your life, or the conflicts in relationships, growing faith displays a growing prayerful trust that Jesus is stronger than evil. That's what he was reminding the disciples here when they failed. Bold, risky, yet loving, humble, prayer-filled faith. Not a triumphant warrior mentality, because as we see here, people are not our enemy. It's the devil. It's the spiritual enemy. That's the true enemy. We love people as we battle evil in growing, prayerful trust. Let's look at the second one. So not only growing growing uh, faith, but growing understanding. Growing understanding, as we see in our second vignette, requires thinking, asking, and listening. It's our second encouragement this morning in the second little story. On the heels of the miracle now, they're, all, they're still here in that setting. Jesus casts out the demon, rebukes it, it comes out. And all the eyes are marveling at Jesus' majesty, which is really the same word, majesty, that Peter uses when he describes the transfiguration in Second Peter. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Jesus is showing glory on the mountaintop. He's showing glory down in the plain, wherever he goes. But on the heels of the miracle, Jesus shares hard words about his death again. Why does he keep speaking about this? They must have been thinking. Why does he keep bringing up this death thing? He's the Messiah. What is going on here? He brings it up again, and they don't understand it. And Luke records they don't any, ask any questions of him to have him clarify. They're afraid, Luke says. They're distressed, another gospel says. We see here, even as it's vague, it's concealed from them. We're not even sure who was doing the concealing. Was it the enemy? Was it God keeping them from understanding something yet? It's a little vague. The full understanding yet for them of the cross, death, and resurrection was concealed from them. But that doesn't mean they couldn't inquire. They couldn't ask questions out of curiosity. They couldn't, uh, you know, wrestle with that confusion and ask him. That's one of the reasons we keep saying here at Bethany Church, we want to be a place that is open to all kinds of questions. Whether you trust Jesus today or you're here and you're like, I don't know what I think about this place, these people, or this man Jesus they talk about. You're in the right place. We want questions here. We want to be able to ask questions here. This has to be a safe place to ask questions here. The disciples had Jesus in front of them. What better person to ask about his death than him? And they didn't, it says. They were afraid. But were they really listening is the question. Were they really listening to him? Because he's saying it multiple times now, and he's going to say it again on the way to the cross over the next year they have left with him. He's going to say it, but were they really listening? And that's a question for us. Are we really listening? Are we really listening to his voice? Because remember on the mountain, what did the father just say to Peter, James, and John? Listen to him. He's my son. Listen to this one. God says that. Listen to him. And here, what does Jesus say? He says, hey, Stick this in your ear. 
stick this in your ear. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And what they do not hear, what they do not understand, is the one that Peter had just professed a couple weeks earlier, had just professed as the Messiah that he could be rejected. They can't grasp that. How can God's work be rejected? How could the Messiah be betrayed? It's a path unknown to them. It's something that they could have understood. They could have questioned and figured out, and Jesus does unwrap it for them post-resurrection, right? As he's with them those days after and weeks after the resurrection. But they didn't. It was a path unknown. You know this. As followers of Jesus... He takes you, doesn't he, sometimes on paths that are unknown. Turns that you never thought you would take, turns you wouldn't make your uh, choices and turns you wouldn't take or make on your own. He takes us on those unknown paths. You're probably, maybe you're in one right now and you're like, how did I get here? How did I get here? This is not what I would have chosen. The disciples are in that, that moment. How did we get here? That's a sharp right, Jesus. Death? This is unknown to us. Jesus gives us tests. Maybe it's ministry responsibilities, right? Turns we didn't expect. Challenges in life. Things that seem to make no sense at all. Why? For the purpose of showing us you're not finished yet. But that means he's saying, I'm not finished with you either. It's for the purpose of growing us. Growing our understanding here as they didn't understand, right? It says that. They didn't understand, but he wants to grow their understanding of who he is in this moment. I'm going to be handed over. It's a learning opportunity. It's a moment for them to think and ask and listen. They don't do it well there, but that's what he's doing in your life with the unforeseen right turn. And as we, we talked a few weeks back, always he always works through the inadequate also, those right turns, those left turns we weren't expecting are many times in places we feel inadequate that he takes us to remind us that, yes, he always works through the inadequate. I'm inadequate for this right now, apart from him. He does it to show us that only through him, only in him, will we have life, success, victory, ministry, growth, you name it. Only through him. It's our job for us to take steps and walk with him even when you don't understand. And that's kind of the definition of faith. All, all the while trying to understand, he's, he's challenging the disciples to think deep. He's asking them questions. He's, he's saying, are you listening? Are you hearing me? Stick this in your ears. I'm going to be handed over to men who are going to do something with me you're not going to like. I want more of this for you and me. This summer, in the fall, more of this asking, this questioning, this listening. But what I love about the disciples here, we have to see this though, and and I'm so glad, because even in their uncertainty, even in their uncertainty, and even though there's still questions as they follow him to the cross, they still follow him, don't they? I'm so glad they did. Yes, there's going to be a moment when they walk away, when they betray him, but right now at least they still don't get it. But you got to say, thank you, Lord, that you kept them faithful. They still walked with him. But isn't that the essence of faith? If it was safe all the time or always felt safe, would it really be faith? 
It wouldn't. It would be by sight, and we'll have that someday. But right now it's faith. So may you and I, as we wrap up the second vignette, may we grow in our understanding that even though we don't always know why he asks us to take that right turn, that we can trust that his hands are underneath us the entire time. Because if they weren't, the disciples would have bailed. A hundred times, a hundred times along the way, they would have bailed. So, let it sink into our ears today. Jesus said he will take us on hard paths of suffering, but he is in control. Here's the third one. Third little vignette that's going to encourage us. The disciples are just bam, bam, bam. Four in a row today. Oh for 4, I guess. That's a bad day at the ballpark. Oh for 4. But that's what they got today. Growing maturity means humbly welcoming the lowest. A child. It's pretty incredible that in our third story now, right after all this has taken place, after Jesus showed his greatness to all of them, that the disciples are found to be childishly arguing about greatness. Who's the greatest? Were Peter, James, and John greater? Hey, we were on the mountain, guys. We can't tell you what we saw because Jesus didn't want us to tell you. We can't tell you, but we saw it. You didn't. Were they greater? Greater because they were the inner circle, the inner three. They had the real Jesus. They knew the real Jesus. Maybe Jesus wanted to keep them closest because you want to keep your weakest disciples closest. I don't know. Maybe. They had the greatest potential to screw up. I'm going to bring these three up the mountain with me because I don't want them with the rest of the guys. But you can see how in a group of 12 men that are with Jesus, we know how easy it would be for there to be power plays and jockeying for position and, and influence. How tempting would that be for all of us if you had the Messiah's ear? You had his ear. And you've been waiting for him forever. And your people are waiting. And your family back home is waiting for victory and redemption and celebration and freedom. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? It'd be really tempting. And I want us to be realistic here. We make distinctions on people's value and worth all the time to make ourselves feel great. We probably do this daily. And we do it in church sometimes. Who, who will make me feel good to talk to this morning? Who is lovable here? Who is unlovable? Who's gifted and who is not? Who are the pretty people and the not so pretty? Who are the successes? Who are the failures? Who are the real movers and shakers around this place? This, ha- this happens everywhere. Every classroom, every school, every business, every home, every church. We're tempted in these ways. We're tempted. But that is the way the kingdom of the world thinks. We're always sizing up people. We, when we meet somebody new even, you do that. We size them up. We're like, eh, what do I think about this guy? What do I think about her? We size people up. What are his skills? How did he get so good at that? Oh, man, she's so funny. I wish I could tell a joke like that. Uh, he seems really nice, but I bet he's a jerk at home. We kind of do those things, though. We size people up. And Jesus right here clearly says, this kind of thinking, he says it's childish. How do we know that? He literally places what in front of them? A child. <laughs> he places a child in front of the disciples. He says, this, is, this, this, this thinking of greatness and comparing yourself to others, 
to feel good about yourself, that's the way of the world. That's the way of works. That's the way of of self-righteousness, self-justification. That's not the gospel way, Jesus says. It's not the way we're going. Two takeaways for us in this section. Here's the first. When we compare to make ourselves feel great with others and make distinctions, discriminations, prejudice, or just comparison, when we do that, it's an affront to the image of God in people. When we make comparisons of greatness with others, you know what gives honor to God? It's to love others, serve others, don't compare ourselves to others. Why? Just because we're image bearers. And every human being is an image bearer. Regardless of their levels of intelligence, levels of beauty, levels of income, levels of influence and power, we're all image bearers. And that gives God honor. We give dignity and honor to people just because they're made in God's image. That's it. Bottom line, it stops there, full stop. They deserve our honor and our glory and our respect and our love and dignity because they're image bearers. And in the ancient world, do you know who had the lowest dignity? Kids. The lowest level of honor, the lowest stature in the ancient world was anybody younger than the adult age. No rights, no opinions, no power, no influence, irrelevant, and sometimes a hassle in a culture where food was sometimes hand-to-mouth. And Jesus says here to the disciples to welcome one of them, to welcome a child is to welcome me and my father. He says to welcome them. Jesus says, is saying to the disciples, a mature person now, a mature follower of me, a mature apprentice, a mature church welcomes the lowly, prizes the lowly, honors the lowly. In our text, the lowly are children. Up to teenagers, anybody who's not considered an adult, it's children. There's much to apply here in the local church setting where we value our children. We value them. Jesus is saying mature Christians invest in the next generation. They welcome them. He's saying it. Maturity is to welcome one like this one, that he set the child in front of them. Mature Christians realize that life is fleeting and power is petty and empty. And what matters is truly the legacy we leave of our faith with the next generation. All that is wrapped up in here as the disciples are saying, well, I'm great. Well, I'm great because of this. Well, I'm great because of this. Jesus says, no. Welcoming one like this is greatness. You want to be great. Spend your life welcoming the lowly. But it's hard. It's hard to serve the lowly. There's not much glory in it. There can be irritation. There's not much recognition in it. There's not much earthly reward in it. Ask our teachers, our social workers, our daycare providers, or people that work in special education, that staff. Ask them if there's glory in this kind of work. (laughs) It's not. I'm sure many of you have heard that 
Katie Horton is stepping down as our children's director at the end of the summer, and it is the right time for her and her family, and we are respecting her decision 100%. But this gives us a unique opportunity as a church again to contemplate what is our commitment to the next generation as a church. And I don't just mean our kids, I mean our youth as well, that David and Caitlin and others work in. What is our commitment to the next generation? One of the most rewarding things I ever have done in ministry, one of the the most rewarding things I've ever done was to teach third and fourth grade Sunday school for like a decade. I wasn't gifted to do it going in. I was inadequate. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't feel particularly called to work with children. I was available. I was just there. I was at that church. But I had a church that realized, like Bethany Church does, realized the value of children. And they trained me, and they equipped me, and they gave me the opportunity. And do you know the one who was blessed out of it? Me. They were, I was the one blessed. Not them. I was the one blessed. But also now, because those kids now, they have kids of their own. And I know that some of them still profess faith, and now they're raising their kids in the gospel. That's how I'm truly blessed because I've seen the fruit now get passed on to the kids of the kids that I taught in Sunday school, which makes me uh, old, I guess, or older, (laughs) or getting older, I guess. Now the kids have kids that were in ministry when I started. In the coming months and years, we have done this, Bethany. I, I know we love our children. I've heard many of you say, I love that there are kids running around the halls of Bethany Church. I love it. But we have to continue to grow, continue to evaluate, continue to see and commit to the next generation at Bethany Church. As Jesus says, a mature church grows in this. A mature person grows in welcoming and raising and befriending the next generation of disciples. Will we welcome the lowest, a child? And that's just not, hey, will you be a body in the classroom? We just need warm bodies there. It's not that. It's about a heart commitment to the next generation. Because if they, we don't pass on the faith, we disappear. And not just in our church, we need to think outside of that. If we don't pass on the faith to that next generation, we disappear in a matter of 10 or 15 years. We've got to continue to think about that. It's a heart commitment to the next generation. What do we say here at Bethany Church when we dedicate children? Do you know? Now, we, we of course, ask the parents to say something. But we also ask the church to say something. Do you remember, you've probably said it out loud together as a church. It's popping up on the screen. We say this uh, about that moment. And I ask you, when we do it, do you, the family of Bethany Church, recognize that these children, and they're not your biological children when they're up here. They might be your spiritual children. Think of that opportunity. Do you recognize that these children have been placed in our community by God and do you covenant together with these parents? Because it's primarily, first, the parents' responsibility to disciple their children, but we partner as a church to live godly lives before our children, asking God to use our lives. And it could be in a million different ways. Some of you have loved our kids, not just by Sunday school teaching, some of you have done that, but other ways too, cards and hellos with our kids and how's school going and, and so many ways you can love. Let me, can I pray for you today? Have you ever prayed for one of the kids in the gathering place after church? How would that blow them away? 
that would blow them away. If an adult that was chatting with them and asking about their life said, you know what, can I pray that you finish the school year well? It would blow them away. But how simple is that? That's such a simple, low-hanging fruit for all of us we could do. Use our lives in the gospel to bring them to salvation. There's a man named Christian Smith who has done long studies and he's followed the lives of, I don't know, it's hundreds of children from childhood into young adulthood and they're probably in their 30s now, late 30s. He's followed them along the way and he's interviewed them multiple, multiple, multiple times and one of the primary markers he has found for a child who grows up in the church and the faith to stay in the church. Do you know what one of the primary markers is? One of the primary markers, apart from their parents getting them there, which is number one, maybe number one, but like number two was that they had a relationship with another adult in the church who was not their parent who lived out their faith in front of that child. The number two marker for children staying in the faith is right behind the parents. It's other adults who live their faith in front of them, who befriend them and, and, and see a real robust faith lived out. So can you have an impact just be, if they're not your biological child in the church? You better believe it. Christian Smith says you're second right behind like parents are other adults. Let's keep thinking about that, Bethany Church, because we've got a generation that's hungry, that wants to see you live out their faith or their, your faith and support them in it. Let's look at our fourth vignette to finish. We close with a little challenge as I head out on sabbatical. I thought the Lord placed this passage here for us so perfectly, it couldn't have been more, more perfect. The disciples in this final vignette attempt to stop someone from ministering because he is not one of the elite disciples. Look at verse 49 with me. He said, they said, oh... John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. He's not one of us. And Jesus says, hey, if he's for me, he's for you. If he's for you and not against you, he's for me. What have the disciples done? They had boiled down ministry in these two years of following Jesus by his side. They boiled it down to this idea of greatness. They were just arguing about status, elite circles, and only the super gifted. We're on the inner circle of the 12. And they boiled down that ministry to that and said, hey, he was doing it and he's not with us. And Jesus says, no, 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 guys, no. He says, have a heart that rejects this mindset that only the super elite can minister the gospel of Jesus. He's saying, have an open heart to all. Have an open heart, guys. Just because he's not one of the 12 I picked doesn't mean he's against us. If he's for me, he's for you. If he's for you, he's for me. Because we are all ministers of the gospel. If you are called disciple, if you call yourself an apprentice, a follower of Jesus, you are to be a minister of the gospel. Not only the inner circle, not only the inner 12, Jesus says, no, have an open heart to all who would be for me. All, don't close your heart off, he says. Here's one of my concerns. I want to try to be honest, open, and transparent as I step away for a few months. One of my concerns for the summer 
is that I, as I step away for three months, an attitude could creep in poss- possibly, I'm just saying possibly, an attitude could possibly creep in that this is like a throwaway summer. Or, well, the real spiritual work is going to slow down if our shepherd is gone. As we've seen this morning, what do we first know? Jesus has unfinished business here with not only our church, but every disciple who's ever lived and who's alive now. We are not finished. We're not finished. Let me tell you what Jesus is saying here in this passage. He is saying that no one, present company included, no one is indispensable. No one. No one is indispensable. That's me included as I head out on sabbatical. Let me tell you why. Because number one, ministry is not for the select few. Jesus says to them here, if he's for us, get out of his way. Let him do ministry kingdom work. But number two, I know this. Who is the true shepherd of Bethany Church? Good. I'm so glad you said that. Whoo! I can go on sabbatical now. It's Jesus. I am just an under-shepherd. David is just an under-shepherd. You are all under-shepherd ministers. Jesus is the true shepherd. And guess what? He is not going on sabbatical this summer. Aren't you glad? He is not going on sabbatical this summer. I get it will feel different with our family gone. That's okay, because I think that means we love you and you love us. I get that it's going to feel different. I get that. But each week as we gather, there's going to be familiar faces up here that you know, men who know you, men who love you, opening God's word with you. And if he is for you, he's what? Not against you. Jesus said to the disciples, if he's for you, get out of his way. Let him do the work God's called him to do in that moment. If he's for you, he's not against you. No one's indispensable. These men are going to open the same word I open as they bring the book of 1 Peter as David takes a big chunk to start it, um, the first four or five next week. So what do you do? Support them with your presence because the mission will move forward in my absence because Jesus is not on sabbatical. So be here, support them. Put on that great facial screensaver we talked about in Six Steps to Loving Your Church, our growth groups. What's your facial screensaver as David preaches next week? Let him be absolutely overjoyed that he gets to stand up here and you guys are hungry, like, bring it, David. (laughs) Right? And Neil, as he steps up for his first time in late July. And others, as Bob and Jack and others, and Burnham is going to be up here and you guys are blessed. We've got a great group of guys that are going to preach this summer. So this summer is not a summer vacation from church. The pastor's gone. The mission still moves forward. And don't be like, well, he won't be here, so he won't see if I attend. So it's kind of like <laughs> summer vacation. No, what's our mission? Helping people follow Jesus. There it is. And that mission goes forward this summer because it never said, Pastor Jeff helps people follow Jesus at Bethany. <laughs> There's no subject there on purpose. It's all of us. All of us help people follow Jesus. It's implied in that phrase there. All of us help people follow Jesus. Why? Because he has unfinished business with us. We are not finished. So let's grow, actually, this summer. Grow in every way we can in spiritual depth, 
Let's grow in our spiritual reach to our community. Let's even, let's see, let's grow maybe even in numbers. As people come this summer and visit, as people move into towns in summertime and people are out doing stuff, I'd love to get together in the fall and have a couple people say, who's this guy? As they see me come back. That would be great. That would be amazing. Let's think of this summer as an opportunity because it is not a one-man show at Bethany Church. It can't be, and I, will never, I won't ever want to pastor churches like that. I would not want to do that. It's all of us in this together. How great that these men are going to get the opportunity to preach this summer. So think about it. Where else will we see God ask people, not just here in this pulpit, but ask us as a church to step into or step up into living out our faith this summer, even as we think about prepping for the fall? I'm thinking that already as I come back. Who are going to be our new Sunday school teachers in the fall? Or Sunday school helpers? We've got to think that way. If you're freaked out, you think, I'm not qualified, that's okay. I wasn't either. We'll train you. Katie is here all through the summer. She'll be getting us ready for the fall. Who's going to jump on youth staff this summer? Who hasn't ever helped out before? Because David is going to have a busy summer this summer. (laughs) He's preaching and he's got camps in July and he's moving next weekend. So he's got a busy summer. They need people. Remember, what did Christian Smith say? The secondary thing behind parents is an adult that knows them. Someone who thinks they can never give it a try, it gives it a try. Who's that going to be? Who lead our new growth groups in the, uh, in the fall? We need two or three more. We need them like now. We needed them yesterday. They're full, and we've got people asking to get in them. Who's going to lead two or three more? Who's going to jump into a DNA group this summer when I come back and say, hey, I tried a DNA group this summer, and it's going great. It's a growth mindset for this summer. That's what I want us to have. Let's not let it be a summer of skating by. But prayerfully consider, what can I step into? What can I step into as we come to this time? This is a family group project, right? It's about all of us. This work goes on in my absence. It's really up to all of us, all of us, Bethany Church. And I'm so thankful for all of you. Because a lot of you have been doing it for years. Long before I got here. Loving Jesus. Loving people. Loving the community. So thank you. Thank you for that. Those who have been doing it for decades. So here's a practical step for you this summer. If you're not serving somewhere at Bethany Church, or maybe you are and you're thinking the Lord wants to maybe to change or try something else, here's a practical takeaway today. Pray this summer. Here's one assignment. The whole summer as I go away. One assignment. Pray this summer for God to show you where he wants you to serve. If you're not yet, pray this summer where God wants you to serve. Maybe it's somewhere new. Each Sunday in our slides that circle or cycle before the service, we'll have a slide up there this summer that says, here's where we've got openings. Here's places to serve. Here's the person to connect. If you're not sure, come 10 minutes early and just pray and stare at that slide. That's your assignment this summer. It's going to be a great summer. I get it. It'll be different. Remember, our lead Pastor Jesus is not on sabbatical this summer. We've got a great elder board and a great staff and great people here. God's going to continue to bless Bethany and work through you and other, others here because what? We're unfinished, aren't we? And he will finish us. He will. Well, as we close today, we're going to sing a couple songs, but our elders, and I'm so grateful for this, they've asked if they could pray for Robin and I as we head out this summer. And so 
I think Bob Yoder, one of our elders, and if any others are here, are going to come on up, and um, Robin's going to come up with me. And I'm just so grateful that they were willing to do that, not only to bless us with this sabbatical, but just to pray and bless our time. And so Bob's here and some other guys, and yeah. Why don't we have Evangeline come up here as well? Come on. We'll pray for the whole family. All right. Let's uh, join together in prayer for, for this family as they as they go on uh, this sabbatical time. Lord God, we, we love this family. We love uh, that they love you. And uh, God, that uh, there is this joy in knowing you and uh, knowing that you will protect them and keep them. God, I pray. I pray for the rest that a sabbatical can bring. I pray for rest for each one of them as they go on their way, that you will uh, send your army of angels around them and protect them in all that they do, whether it's here at home or as they travel to visit loved ones. God, uh, keep them all uh, safe and well. God, I pray for renewal, a renewal maybe of uh, relationship with family that they haven't seen for a while or, or family right here together with one another. God, renewal with you and uh, that relationship with you that uh, is so vital in, in their lives. God, we, we just uh, thank you for the fact that uh, this opportunity has availed itself, that, uh, that Jeff and, and Robin, Evangeline, Margot, and Jack can, uh, can take this time away. And God, we pray for return. I thank you for Jeff's uh, 